hey dad happy father's day uh i'm grateful for you because you're kind and creative when you play with us uh hey dad thanks for um creating with us hey dad thanks for loving being loving and kind and playing with us hey dad thanks for cooking for us happy father's day we love you So those are my four boys. That was a surprise for me in the 9 o'clock service. Did not know that they had put that video together. And uh, you can see they love being in front of the camera about as much as I like being on stage in front of people. Uh, runs in the family, but uh, we're called of God to uh, communicate the word this morning. And uh, I do want to reiterate Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. And before we dive into the message this morning on the nature of God as Father, I want to give a quick plug for the Discipleship School. So... Uh, I have been directing the school for the last five years, and I, my role is changing slightly at the church, handing off the discipleship school, uh, school director role to Matthew Thompson, who was in the 9 o'clock service, uh, and uh, he's going to do a phenomenal job with the school. And we have our application open right now through July 1st, another week and a half or so. And if you haven't done the school, we'd love for you to uh, pull out your phone, open up the camera app, and point it at that QR code, and click on the link, and just read a little bit more about the school. You can watch some testimonies from folks just like you who've gone through the school before and uh, consider jumping in. It's a nine-month uh, discipleship program that runs from August through May. Uh, we meet twice a week in the fall and once a week in the spring and the evenings. And just it, it exists to help you go deeper in your walk with the Lord, to, to be more biblically rooted, uh, to grow in prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit and healthy relationships and so on and so forth. So it's for everybody in the room, regardless of your stage of life, vocation. would love for you to check that out. And again, the application closes July first. Well, we are in our series, The Names and Nature of God, and we have a, uh, a statement that we've been reading at the beginning of each message. That's going to come up on the screen. I want you to read it with me. You don't have to stand, but uh, let's read this together. Miracles in the Bible and in daily life reveal the awesome name and nature of God. He does miracles to show us who he is and how much he cares. When we read or experience the miraculous work of God, we will respond with increased faith and sincere worship. To that I say amen. amen. And uh, normally on Father's Day, uh, we would do kind of an exhortation to dads. I was actually, uh, Drew, Stebbin, and I were joking, uh, thinking towards Father's Day that, you know, on Mother's Day, we do this like really tender message. Moms, we love you. You're so valued. And then for Father's Day, it's typically dads suck it up. We need you to do a better job. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, but normally we would do some sort of exhortation to fathers. But today we're actually going to do, in keeping with this series, The Names and Nature of God, we're going to look at the nature of God as Father, which certainly applies to all the dads in the room. Uh, we, we pattern how we father our kids after the nature of God as Father. But it actually applies to everybody in the room. And this has been a, a key message for me in my own spiritual development uh, coming out of, uh, I was adopted, and my biological mom was 14, uh, adopted into a great family. But this, this kind of theme of fatherlessness has crept up, you know, throughout my life and manifested in different ways and experienced loneliness in different ways. And it's a, a place that God has had to meet me in. And actually part of that came through doing the discipleship school and being exposed to a teaching by John Dawson with YWAM, 
from back in the 70s or 80s called The Father Heart of God, and highly recommend looking that up. It's actually on YouTube, John Dawson, The Father Heart of God, uh, worth every minute of the two and a half hours of that teaching. And it was so impactful for me, it actually led to writing a book called The Father's Heart, something of a companion reader to that teaching. Uh, we have it out in the bookstore, but I've got a free copy here for the first hand that I see go up. I saw you, Kiki. Can I, can... All right. So that's out in the bookstore. And today we're going to talk about the love, the forgiveness, and the nearness of the Father. Uh, but in the book also we talk about the friendship, affirmation, generosity, and provision, authority, and discipline, judgment, emotions, and empowerment of the Father. So if today whets your appetite for this topic, then uh, I encourage you to check that out as well. Because I've, I've found that it's not just me who's had a hard time relating with God as Father. As I began my walk with the Lord... It was easier for me to relate with God as awesome, majestic, uh, holy, to be feared, revered, respected. And it was easy for me to worship and to just stand in awe of who he is. It was harder, though, as I uh, came to this church and started reading the Bible in earnest. The, all these passages about God as Father uh, and his compassion and his tenderness and his nearness and approachability and forgiveness. And for some reason, that was just harder for me to wrap my, my arms around. And I find that a lot of other people are like me as well. Maybe you grew up in church and the refrain, you know, God loves you or Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It's, uh, it's become so familiar, it's lost its potency. And we're like, yeah, sure, I know God loves me, but does, does he really like me? Does, is he favorable towards me? What does he actually feel or think about me? Is he pleased with me? Am I okay? Is he really with me, especially in places of pain, disappointment, and loss? What does it mean that God is Father? And a lot of us walk around with a big question mark over our soul uh, of these insecurities. Carl talked about some of them last week, the, that we find our identity, that I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what other people think about me. And I find that a lot of these insecurities are tied to a misunderstanding of God's nature, and especially God's nature as Father. Father is one of the primary ways God reveals himself throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. He could have said, he could have patterned prayer after our Lord, our God, our judge, all of which are true, but he chose our Father to teach us to address God as such. But all of us have this kind of fractured understanding of what God's like. It's like we're looking through stained glass and we see a, see a distorted view of God because of sin, our own sin, or the things that have been done to us. A lot of us view God through the lens of our own parents for better or for worse. And I think that fracturing of that relationship and that understanding of what God's like then gets manifested inwardly in the fracturing of our own soul because we were made to be in relationship with God as Father. So that's what we're going to look at briefly this morning, uh, the love of the Father, the forgiveness of the Father, and the nearness of the Father, and a couple of implications for us. So we'll start with the love of the Father, and we'll look at uh, Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. This is such a beautiful passage. If you uh, are looking for a passage of Scripture just to chew on a little bit this week, to read, to pray, to meditate on, I'd highly recommend this passage. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is King David writing, and he is quoting uh, almost verbatim out of Exodus 34. 
Uh, one of the first times God self-reveals, like describes himself to a person, and God is describing himself to Moses there in the book of Exodus, and he's saying, this is who I am. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And even just yesterday, in my own journey in parenting, often I am quick to anger, as my kids could attest, my wife could attest, and so I get to... Uh, come back and repent uh, after uh, raising my voice for an outburst of anger. So I got to, again, yesterday to say, uh, you know, boys, I repent for raising my voice. Uh, that is not like God. God is slow to anger, and you guys aren't responsible for dad's emotions. Dad's responsible for dad's emotions, but God is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love. Actually, in that passage in Exodus 34, it says that he extends his love to the thousandth generation, harboring anger to the third and fourth generation, and that's a great ratio, right? If you take the conservative math there, that would be a 250 to 1 ratio of love to anger. Uh, it's not the intent of that passage uh, to get mathematical, but I think the point here is that God is saying, I am far more abundantly more gracious, patient, and loving than we like to think that he is. We tend to, in our own brokenness, we project how we feel about ourselves, uh, how others feel about us, onto how God feels about us. And he's saying through, prophetically through David here, I am abounding in steadfast love. In verse 9, he says, he will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. You just see David sitting out in the field or wherever he was when he wrote this psalm, like what, how can I describe the love of God and just looking up and seeing the vastness of the sky and saying it's bigger than that. I don't know how else to describe it. But it's higher than the heavens are above the earth, the abundance of the love of the Father. As verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Being a father myself has helped uh, connect me to the reality of these of these verses. If you've had the privilege of being a parent or maybe in some different capacities, you've experienced something like this. But I remember, and I could say this, I've got three of my four boys here. I could say this for any one of them, but I'll talk a lot about Aiden today just because he's my oldest and this happened first with him. Uh, a lot of these revelations came through those first couple of years of parenting. I remember one time in particular, uh, he had woken up in the middle of the night, about six months old, uh, demanding to be fed. And so uh, trying to give my wife a little reprieve, I took a shift and got a bottle and went and picked him up out of his crib and sat down in a, in a chair. And I, I don't know how to fully describe it, but as I was sitting there holding him, and he's wearing this little uh, onesie, it's like a cow onesie with little cow faces on the feet. And you know, his eyes are flagging, he's in the middle of the night, he's eating, and I just got overwhelmed with emotion. And for those of you who know me, I'm not prone to sentimentality. Um, so I think it was a God moment. Um, and I just felt this, I don't, just this overwhelming compassion towards this helpless little infant that's completely dependent on Steph and I. And I felt such profound love for him. Uh, and it brought me to tears. I just started crying. And I remember thinking, I want to remember this moment for the rest of my life. And I was sitting there, and I had this thought, 
God, if I feel this for my son, is it possible that you actually feel this way towards me? And I feel like the Lord said, infinitely more so. If you, being a fallen person, could feel such deep compassion for a creature that does not contribute anything yet to your family, uh, except for dirty diapers and spit-ups and crying in the middle of the night, and he can't contribute anything to you, and you, yet you feel this way towards him, how much more do I feel love and compassion and great, tender affection for you? Fast forward about a year or so, Aiden's maybe 18 months old, and uh, it was a hot summer in Waco. Surprise, surprise. Uh, 2012, looks like it's shaping up to be another one. Um, and I was out front. We, we lived just around the corner from the church and was out front trying to, in vain, keep our flowers alive. And so I'm watering the flowers. And I, uh, at some point, I feel a little tug on the hose, and I turn around, and there's Aiden, and he's in not but his diaper, and he's a uh, little, little baby Michelin man. You know, the roll's kind of folding over his diaper, and pasty white, and chubby, and ear-to-ear grin, and pale blue eyes, toe-head blonde, just so cute. And, and uh, it was evident that he just wanted, he's cringing, and uh, we'll deal with this later. Um, he's heard me share these stories about him so many times. Uh, I have his permission. Right? No. Okay. Um, do now. Um, but grinning ear to ear, it's evident he just wants to do what dad's doing. And uh, it just melted my heart. And thankfully, I was, I was kind of clued in in that moment and didn't bypass this kind of moment with my son. And so together, we, you know, we just kind of putted around and, and watered the flowers. Now, um, did his assistance actually expedite the process? No, and now he's a genuinely helpful contributing member of our family. But at that time, his assistance was an impediment to getting the task done. But I was willing to slow down and do that because, why? I wasn't trying to be efficient in my work. I was, I was uh, happy to exchange that for fellowship and a, a memory with my son. And a couple weeks later, I was reflecting on this, uh, this kind of image uh, in my mind with the Lord in prayer and prayer. Uh, and it just occurred to me again, I was like, Lord, again, this is a lot like you and I, isn't it? And I felt like the Lord said, Mick, on your best day, you are massively slowing me down. <laughs> and kind of belly, you know, I felt like it was like a heavenly belly laugh. And, and I felt like he said, um, but in the same way, I, every day I'm choosing to exchange efficiency for fellowship with you. And I said, in fact, I don't need you for anything but I want you. I didn't need my son's help, but I wanted his participation, and it enriched the experience. In the same way, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you for global evangelization. He doesn't need you to raise your family, but he does want you, and God is a worker, so if we want to be in fellowship with God, we need to be in partnership in him doing what our father is doing. But it's out of a place of a desire for fellowship. It's a love response we're not just pawns or tools in his hand. He designed us for fellowship with him. God loves you. And he is far more loving and gracious than we give him credit for most of the time. Let's talk about the forgiveness of the Father because they go hand in hand with the love of the Father. That passage in Psalm 103 says he doesn't repay us according to our sins. 
Now, he would be just to do so. And I'm not going to go uh, as in-depth on this one because we talked about this at length uh, on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, so you can go back and listen to that message. But in brief, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God had told Adam and Eve to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You fast forward one chapter, and he had said, for the day you do, that you will surely die. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat of that tree. But in that day, they didn't die, but something else did. If you remember the the story in chapter 3, verse 21, it says that God made animal skins to clothe them, to cover their shame. So while they didn't die that day, God shed the blood of one of these creatures that he had just made and declared, this is good. And then he skinned it, created clothes, covered them, and this then became a pattern all throughout the Old Testament. This system of sacrifices, whereby the nation of Israel could transfer their sin, according to God's pattern, to these various animals. Their blood was shed so that they could be atoned for, they could be forgiven. Well, of course, this was not sufficient ultimately, so fast forward to Jesus. And John the Baptist's proclamation of Jesus, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, Behold the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The God of the universe, this cosmic, vast, powerful God, chooses to reveal himself in this way as a lamb that would go to slaughter on the cross to take our place and be our substitute, that our sins could be heaped on his shoulders, that we could be forgiven ultimately and fully. And that's an astonishing truth of the Christian faith that all of us could uh, benefit from meditating on daily that you are fully forgiven. And this then is the miracle. We talked about the fact that this series, the names and nature of God, that it's miracles that are displaying the nature of God. This is the miracle for some of you who have been tracking, wondering where's the miracle in this message. The miracle is that we are forgiven in spite of ourselves. (laughs) That God would extend his grace and his mercy. And I am so... uh, conscious of how I fall short every day, and it blows my mind every day. It plagues me how how far short I fall of his glory and his standard every day, and it takes morning by morning waking up and receiving afresh, God, you actually forgive me. You actually remove my sins as far as the east is from the west. Probably two or three times a week, I meditate on that verse that his mercies are new today. Praise God. Thank you, God. The Father forgives us. Um, There's a quote from John Chrysostom, who was the bishop of Constantinople, all the way back in the fourth century. If you track with me whenever I teach, I like to read these quotes from the first several centuries of the church just to tie us together uh, to our heritage, that our faith is thousands of years old, and these are not new concepts, not new thoughts. But he said it this way, the logical consequence was that they who transgressed the precept i.e. sinned, once it had been given, be punished and dishonored. This, however, was not what took place. Rather, reinstatement once more and pardon, not due, of course, but given out of mercy and grace. Now, one of the implications of this is that uh, when we fall short, which we do every day, when we do, there are no relational consequences for our sin. Now, there are still practical consequences. Sin costs something. Something dies. But there are no relational consequences. What I mean by that is, uh, and we've uh, owed a great debt of gratitude to Jimmy and Laura for modeling this for us. We lived with several families. We got to see this. And uh, on a good day, 
when our kids disobey, the idea is that there's not a breach of relationship, but we bring them into our room, we explain the offense, there's some sort of discipline, whether it's spanking or loss of privilege or something, but there's never, it's not done in anger, and when it is done in anger, we get the opportunity again to turn around and confess, hey, that was wrong, that's on us. Our anger is our sin, and we repent. Otherwise, we, we maintain a physical proximity with our kids, there's discipline, and there's immediate and full forgiveness. We don't bring it up again, ever. It is, com- it is completely dealt with. It's in the past. It's forgiven, absolved, and we move on. And there's never a breach of relationship. Most of us are disciplined with some form of relational consequence, whether that's in marriage, in parenting, uh, with friends, friends, roommates. Uh, and, and typically on one end of the spectrum, there's anger. So you do something wrong, you get the back of the hand. Or on the other end of the spectrum, there's shame, so we, we mess up, and then there's this broken relationship, and we don't talk about it. And we're not 100% sure when we're kind of back in, in the good graces, but eventually we kind of slide in there. Or maybe some of us in here are ex- experiencing extended brokenness in relationships because of shame. But God doesn't discipline this way because he has completely forgiven and absolved us because of the cross. So when we blow it, we might experience practical consequences, but God never turns his back. He never holds us at arm's length. He never is like, ugh, I I can't look at you. We project that onto God because we feel that way about ourselves. Or others have told us that we're worth nothing. Or that we're dirty. And we feel the shame and the condemnation of Satan. Satan's the accuser of the brethren. But God says, no, my arms are open to you. And we can come into his presence even the moment after we sin. That's an amazing thing. Because we don't function that way as humans. Or we are trying more and more to become like Jesus. We're being molded into his image. But that's what he's like. He extends forgiveness ultimately and fully. The Father loves you. The Father forgives you on the basis of his own merit. And the Father is near. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who's near. All the way from the beginning, you see Adam and Eve in the garden, in fellowship with God, of course, there's a breach and there's a separation. And the, the, the story then of the Old Testament is this God of pursuit and this desire you see in Exodus 29, 45 and 46. God speaking, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see this refrain repeated all throughout the Old Testament. And then the coming of Jesus, John 1, he is the word become flesh that he might dwell among us. One of his names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation. At the end of time, you see this culmination, this apex here in uh, chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What a tender image, that it's God himself who wipes away the tears of his people. Who does that in the natural? That's the role of a father, a mother. A parent who lovingly cares for the pain and the hurts of their 
children. And this is the image of God at the end of time, fully reconciled to us in the resurrection, wiping away the tears from our eyes. There might be a rebuttal out there from some of us who think, okay, if God is for me, he loves me, forgives me, he uh, is with me, then what about the pain? Where is God or where was God when? And those questions are legitimate. And I'm not going to stand up here and try to answer those questions this morning. I don't know ultimately why all the loss and the suffering and the pain. But I do know who is with you and who is with me in the midst of it. Um, Around that same time period when Aiden's about 18 months old, uh, we were out in that same front yard and I was on uh, kid duty as Paxton had just been born. Stuff was inside with him. And uh, Aiden was running down our driveway, and, you know, uh, kids have bigger heads uh, relative to their bodies than adults. And so he got a little out ahead of himself and, and went headfirst uh, into the driveway. And instead of putting his arms out to break his fall, he threw him back like Superman for some reason. And so his face took the brunt of his fall on the driveway. And I could hear from where I was standing the distinctive sound of bone on concrete, and, uh, and so I ran over to him. He tumbled, came up. There's blood and, and, and uh, everything else. And so I scooped him up, tried as calmly as I could to walk into the house. And hey, everything's okay, Steph. We just might need to go to the uh, emergency room. Um, <laughs> called a doctor friend of mine, sent him some pictures. And by some miracle, there wasn't a ton of damage except for his front tooth seemed to take the entire brunt of his fall and had kind of sheared up toward the gum and was all, all broken up and... And so uh, our dentist friend said, yeah, you need to take him into the uh, pediatric oral surgeon, and they need to do x-rays, make sure his jaw wasn't broken, and they'll, at, at a minimum, they'll need to extract the rest of that tooth so it doesn't get infected. So we went in, and sure enough, that's all there was. By some miracle, there wasn't more damage, and they said, yeah, it's not urgent, but we do need to take that, that tooth out. Uh, so I drew the sh- short straw and got to go with Aiden to that appointment, and um, so we show up, and they... Uh, gave him a little uh, sedative, a little Dramamine or something, just to take the edge off. And so we sat there until he kind of fell asleep in my arms. And we went back to the room, and I laid his little body on the table. And the nurses said, okay, now, when we inject his gum with Novocaine, that needle is going to wake him up, and and, uh, we might need your help to hold him still. Uh, Ironically, he won't really feel anything after that. It's a pretty painless procedure. But if his head's thrashing around, he could injure himself further because we get the pliers in there and everything else. And so... Sure enough, uh, they stuck the needle in his gums, and wow, he is fully awake, and he is baby Samson all of a sudden throwing nurses across the room, and, <laughs> and they're having a hard time holding him still, and so uh, nurse is like, Dad, uh, it's your turn, and so uh, they said, hey, we need your help. If you can kind of hook your leg up over his legs, and, and then lay on his chest and hold his arms down with your arms, and so... You know, I was 18 months old, so I, I kind of lay half on the table. I got my, arm, my legs pinning his legs down and my chest on his chest, my arms on his arms, and my face is about 18 inches from his face, and he's screaming, and he's staring into the depths of my soul. <laughs> and with his eyes, he's communicating, you're a traitor. <laughs> I trusted you. You're one of them. And I'm just whispering back to my buddy, we got to go through this. I love you. I'm with you. I know you don't understand. This is almost over. We've got to do this. If we don't, it's going to get infected. I'm reasoning with an 18-month-old. I'm like, buddy, I'm right here. I'm right here. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm right here. 
he calmed down just long enough that they got the pliers in there and grabbed that tooth and yanked it out, and he didn't feel it. They put a little rag soaked in sugar water in his mouth, and he was as happy as a clam, like nothing had ever happened. Gave him a little box with the tooth fragment, and he went skipping out of the doctor's office. And again, I was reflecting on that in prayer, and this is a theme in this season. It's like, God, again, that's just like us, isn't it? And I felt like the Lord said, if you would stop long enough from accusing me and just listen, in your pain, you discover that I'm right there. I'm right here, buddy. You're going to make it. You're going to make it through this. And, and he has a perspective that we don't have. He sees the whole landscape. And I do not pretend to understand or to try to speak on God's behalf for why you're going through your pain. But after going on 16, 17 years of ministry, what I do know is that most people's most profound revelations of God came out of their places of deepest pain. That veil gets worn really thin, and we're aware of our need and the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. And he shows up in our pain if we will but calm ourselves long enough and listen. Ask him to reveal himself. God, what are you doing in this place of pain? Who are you? And hear him whisper, I'm right here. I'm with you. We're going to make it through this. Isaiah 43.2 says, when you pass through the waters, not if, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I don't know how to answer all the questions, but I do know who is with us. God loves you. The Father forgives you. The Father is near one more implication of these truths comes out of John chapter 14, and we'll end here. And I'm not going to put the scriptures up on the screen. If you have a Bible, if you could turn to John chapter 14, I want you to see it in front of you. Uh, if you have an app with the Bible on it, you can turn to John chapter 14, about 80% of the way through the Bible. If you need to look at the table of contents, it's totally fine. But John chapter 14, if you don't have a Bible, no sweat, we'll read the scriptures out loud. I think there's some power in seeing it for yourself in the text. We'll start in verse 12, John chapter 14. And for context, Jesus is with his disciples here at the Last Supper. He's about to go to the cross. He's just kind of giving some last teachings and last instruction. And above this passage, in some translations, it actually says, Jesus comforts his disciples. So there's a, a tenderness to this moment. They're about to lose this friend of theirs in a very violent and graphic way. He knows that's coming. So he says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, what kind of statement is that? Is Jesus asking a question there? No, he's making a, a declarative statement about the future, that we have a P word for that. What word is that? It's a promise, right? Jesus is making a promise. Okay, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What is that? Another promise, not a trick question. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Another what? 
another promise. Okay, skip verse 15 for a moment. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, another promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you, and so on and so forth. This is a long list of what? Promises. Are you convinced? Okay. You don't have to take my word for it. That's why I wanted you to see it in the scripture. So right there in the middle of this list is verse 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right? Now, full disclosure, when I first started following the Lord and reading the Bible, I came across this verse, and I heard manipulation in Jesus' voice. And you might have heard maybe kids saying, hey, if I was your best friend, you'd give me the last of the candy or whatever. Um, Time to time, it maybe happens in our house. Hey, if you really love me, this would happen. Is that what Jesus is doing here? How should this verse be read? We just said this is in a long list of what? So this is actually a promise. Read it as a promise. Listen. You can almost picture Jesus kind of pulling his disciples in close. Listen, guys, guys, if you love me, you will obey me. I promise you. Stop trying so hard to obey me. If you love me, I promise you'll obey me. That'll take care of it. Love me. And I promise you, you will obey me. You guys hear the difference? It's not performative. The emphasis on, is on loving him and those who love obey And often we put the cart before the horse and we try to prove our love out through our actions. But that's not the way of Jesus. You say, well, okay, how how do you love God? Well, there's actually a prerequisite to loving God. We find out in 1 John 4.19, we love because what? He first loved us. So we know these passages. We love because God first loved us. The great commandment, Matthew 22, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there's a great pre-commandment. And that is to receive the love of the Father. We love because God first loved us. So this is how this goes. We receive the love of the Father, and we're compelled to love him in return. When we love him, according to Jesus in John 14, we will obey him. When we obey him, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, we see him. And what do we see when we see God? See how much he loves you. When you see how much he loves you, you're compelled to love him in return. And when you love him in return, you obey him. When you obey him, you see him. And what do you see when you see God? See how much he loves you. And when you see how much he loves you, you're compelled to love him. When you love him, you obey him. When you obey him, you see him. And what do you see when you see the Father? Love. You see how much he loves you. And this is the love cycle that goes, spirals upward for the rest of your life and on into eternity. But a lot of us are trapped in the performance cycle. The other way of reading that verse, I'm insecure about the love of God, so I try really hard. And my best efforts don't measure up again, and so I double down, I feel ashamed, and I try harder. And it just doesn't measure up ultimately, and so I double down and I try a little harder. Anybody been caught in that cycle before? I know I have. That's a miserable cycle. Rather, receive the love of the Father. If you're having a hard time being a good Christian... (laughs) Start by receiving the love of the Father, which is unmerited. It's freely given based on his efforts and not yours. Based on his heart towards you and not your behavior. Receive the love of the Father. If you're trapped in cycles of addiction, patterns of thought, 
uh, outbursts of anger. You feel like you're not a very good witness to Jesus at work. Receive the love of the Father. Is when you see how much he actually loves you, like really loves you, you're compelled to love him in return. And when we love him, we obey him. When we obey him, we see him. Well, I want to respond to this uh, message in a particular way that has to do with receiving the love of the Father. So if you guys could stand with me. And, and prayer teams, if you, could guys, if you guys could go ahead and start making your way down the front, especially any dads, trusted uh, leaders in our midst who are dads, uh, want, want you guys to be available to pray. And in a moment, we're going invite, to uh, invite you forward for prayer just to receive the Father's love. Maybe this is a new concept for you, or maybe you know these things, but you know there's a breakdown in actually living it. And as I was praying for, uh, for you guys uh, in preparation this week, I was reminded of a, uh, uh, a time about eight months ago where I was just kind of in a low, uh, low place and carved out some time to get some extended time with Jesus. And so I was out at Cameron Park and was praying, and I, I felt compelled to go to the prayer room, so I drove over here, and I could feel like God was doing stuff in me, but I wasn't sure what yet. Um, and so I came across the street here to the prayer room and was just sitting there and, and worshiping, and, and I had this kind of image uh, pop into my head of the hospital room where I was born. Now, I've never seen it, so this is just how it, how it seemed to me in my, in my mind's eye. And again, my biological mom was 14, and um, she almost died in childbirth. I do know that. And uh, I just saw her in this hospital bed, scared and alone. And my biological dad wasn't there, and understandably so. He's a scared 14-year-old boy, unprepared to take on the responsibility of fatherhood. But in this moment, as I'm looking into this kind of hospital room in my mind's eye, anger is coming up, not compassion for... uh, the biological mom or dad, but anger. And I found this kind of anger getting projected towards my biological dad of, you know, I was actually just crying out, where were you? Where were you? I needed you. And it was just kind of crying out. And then my own adoptive father is fantastic father. But I do know in those early days that he was unsure of his ability to love someone else's child. So he really wrestled with, do I want to adopt? And so kind of in this hospital room, feeling unwanted, feeling passed over. And as I'm wrestling this through and kind of crying out to the Lord in my mind's eye, this presence of God fills the hospital room. It was as if God, the Father, burst in and said, I want you. I want you. If no one else wants I want him. I'll take him. I want him. He's jumping up and down and tears streaming down his face. I want him. And I felt the same thing. I feel like there are certain individuals this morning, you feel unwanted. You feel like you've disqualified yourself from the love and the grace of God. He's saying, no, 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 I want you. I want you. I dreamt you up before the beginning of time. You've projected your own pain and the, the, the brokenness of others onto me. Those are lies from the pit of hell. I want you. I have marked you and adopted you as my own. And so, Father, this morning, we ask for a revelation a revelation of your heart that we are wanted, that you gave everything to purchase us and to bring us into your fold. We pray that you would silence the lies of the enemy that say that we are unwanted, that we are undeserving, that of course we're undeserving, 
But as again, it's based on your merits. So God, I pray the chains would fall off right now all over the room. And you guys can, if you need prayer, just need somebody to put a hand on your shoulder, you can just start coming forward as I'm praying. Father, I pray that chains would fall off all over the room, chains of deceit and chains of addiction and chains of insecurity and depression and anxiety. Those chains of feeling unwanted and so unclean that no one would ever take us in. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Holy Spirit, all over the room, would you open eyes to the love of the Father today? That we are loved. We are forgiven and clean. You are clean. Someone in here right now needs to hear that. You are clean. And you are near, Father. And I pray that we would know your nearness. So as we worship to one last song, come on forward if you need prayer. Please don't leave without letting a dad, letting a trusted friend, pastor, put a hand on your shoulder and pray for a fresh revelation to receive the love of the Father. And for the rest of us, let's just worship God for these great gifts.